Welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. Today on the podcast, we have a special guest, my friend, as of the last year or so, Alex Bernardo, host of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. He's going to join us today. We're going to talk about Christians and politics and all kinds of other things. Alex, welcome to the show, sir. Kevin, thank you so much for having me today, man. I'm really excited to be here. Me too. Um, just really quickly, I will tell everybody how we actually got to be uh, how we got to be acquaintances and, and friends. Uh, I think back in February, when the Asbury revival stuff was going on, uh, I, I, I bet some people are probably hearing this and thinking, "Oh yeah, that happened, right?" That's how short <laughs> that's how short our memories are. But back when that stuff was going on, I was tweeting about it because it was happening at the college across the street from where I got my doctorate. And I had friend. I, I've got a good friend who's uh, teaching New Testament there at Asbury College or Asbury University, and I've got uh, plenty of other friends who are uh, working in the school or working as students across the street at the seminary. And so I was aware of sort of what was going on. I think you maybe had had seen some of my tweets about it, and, and were also in conversation with some other people who were kind of questioning, you know, maybe or a little bit more skeptical about that. And I think we also ended up liking a lot of the same memes at some point. <laughs> and so that was basically how we ended up meeting. Um, Alex, tell us, what do you do? How did you get there? And t tell us a little bit about your political journey to uh, to coming, uh, I guess you could say coming out as a libertarian. Yeah, so I really appreciate you having me on to talk about this. I think it's a, a really important issue. I am right now a public school teacher, which is a very, very interesting career choice for a libertarian, and it's one of the reasons why I am a libertarian right now. Um, but before I was a public school teacher, I was in ministry for eight years. So I went to college and got my degree in biblical studies, and I was a bivocational minister. I worked in a couple of churches, a Methodist church and a Lutheran church as well that I had grown up in. Um, and I did that for a very long time, and that definitely had a profound impact on my worldview. I, As far as my libertarian journey goes, I think I've always been a libertarian, even though I did not know what that philosophy was until about seven or eight years ago. And I remember when I was growing up, like my mom and dad are really great people, like just incredible. And I had a great childhood and everything, but I've always been very skeptical of authority. And I've always hated having people tell me what to do. And I'm not, I'm not sure why <laughs> that's the case. And I've also had this extreme, this extreme need to be consistent that if I'm going to believe in something that my actions need to follow. And so we always went to church growing up and we were in, a Lutheran church when I was in middle school and high school, and I went through the confirmation process. And I, you know, even though I'd gone to church, I didn't take my faith that seriously. But I remember when I got to the end of the confirmation process, they we had the opportunity to stand up in front of the church and say whether or not we were confirmed. And I was the only kid that turned it down. I said no because I just I knew that my, the life that I was living was like not consistent with the things that they wanted me to affirm in front of the church. But I had a really good mentor during that program, and he pushed me to read the Bible, which I eventually did. And I wound up realizing that like I need to take this Christian faith very seriously. I, I understand that this is like, this is legit. But I also, as I started reading through the Bible, I realized that like my faith was not something that somebody ever compelled me to do. Like I chose to follow Jesus. I made that choice on my own. Nobody forced me to do it. And as I was reading through the Bible, I realized that that's like kind of the model for evangelism. Like you can't force somebody to be a Christian. They have to make that choice on their own. Like you put a gun to somebody's head and you say, Hey, do you believe in Jesus? And they say, yes, they don't have faith. Like that's not legitimate yeah. faith. They were, they were forced to do that. And so when I was in high school, I realized that it was not my job to try to force other people to become Christians. It was my responsibility to witness through the way that I 
I lived my life, and that they had to make the choice to follow Christ. And along with that observation came the realization that I couldn't police other people's behaviors. And so it didn't make a lot of sense for me as a Christian to assume that if someone did not have my Christian worldview, that they should live by all of the values that arise from my faith. So I shouldn't expect that other people would act like Christians because they're not. And so I didn't have that expectation. And if I want someone to change their behavior, I should try to convince them through the way that I live my life. There was never any, there was never any idea that we should use force. And like for, for my spiritual journey, I think Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, where Jesus says, you know, the wheat and the weeds have to grow up together and on the last day, they'll be separated. Um, I think that that had a really profound impact on the way that I approached other people. I just realized yeah. that like, they're always going to be unbelievers. That's just a part of, of the way things go. And I have a responsibility to testify to my faith and maybe they'll accept it and maybe they won't. And as I got older, I think that that idea um, started as I, you know, as I, got, as I became more aware of, of politics and of my place in the world, I think that that was just an idea that I consistently held. And for a while, when I was in college, I was like, you know, this was during the height of the war on terror. And so, you know, to, I graduated high school in 2007. So we're in the middle of you know, the George Bush era. And I was I was raised in Kentucky. So had some conservative. I thought that I was conservative, but I was like, you know, I really don't like all of the authoritarianism that I see coming from like the Bush administration. And then when it came to issues at the time that were emerging, like pot legalization and like gay marriage, I, I you know, never smoke marijuana. And I go to a very traditional church where we don't organ say same sex ministers. But I realized that, that again, like, I don't think that that stuff should be illegal. Like if you're not a Christian, um, then why should like you be restricted to my political values? And so I was not, I was in favor of same sex marriage, not because I thought that it was morally appropriate for Christians, but because I felt like if you're not a Christian, you shouldn't be restricted by the law to follow my worldview. It just never made any sense to me that we would have to impose laws to make other people live by the standards of our faith. And mm -hmm. so I went on and on and on in this journey, kind of not knowing where I was. And it was in the 2016 um, presidential race where I knew I wasn't going to vote for Donald Trump and I knew mm -hmm. I wasn't going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Now, there's no way in the world I was going to do that. And I remember like coming home from work one day and thinking, I need to check out my other options. And Gary Johnson, the libertarian candidate for president, was on Anderson yeah. Cooper, and mm -hmm. he uh, laid out all of his platforms on that show. And uh, he was talking about lowering taxes and about decreasing the size of the military and about legalizing pot and about ensuring that same-sex couples have the same rights as everybody else. And I was like, politically, that is exactly what I am. I am a libertarian. And so from there on, I started to read and study and do more work. And this was at the same time I was getting my master's degree to become a teacher. And uh, when I became a teacher, I started working at a um, at an inner city school. And I realized very quickly how the government bureaucracy actually held these kids back and made it impossible for them to learn the skills that they oh, needed yeah. to be successful. And then I, uh, I transitioned to more of a, a kind of a suburban slash rural school where I teach right now is on the southern edge of our county. So we got a lot of farm kids, but then also a lot of kids from the suburbs. And I was there through the COVID pandemic. And I saw just over and over again how the bureaucracy really harmed our students, regardless of what you think about what happened there. There were a lot of negative impacts that were not taken into consideration that our students are dealing with. And so I got more and more into libertarian philosophy. And I just realized that this this seems to be uh, the best way to approach politics and the best way to approach the problems that we face as a society. So I think that's my journey. And that's that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, yeah. We, we've had a lot of, I would say, shared experiences or at least similar experiences. Uh, so I graduated high school in 2004. And um, and so like I, I vis vividly remember um, you know, when 9-11 happened, I was gosh, I was in AP World History when you yeah. know, the girl came in and said, turn on the TV, turn on the TV. You know, they'd, they've hit the other tower or something like that. And you know, nobody knew what was going on because uh, nobody had smartphones, right? We weren't getting instant news notifications and everything else like that. And the TVs were off because we were about to start school. Um, and then going on through 
through college and you know kind of seeing the war on terror for um you know as as someone who was not particularly involved i i remember i remember thinking at some point this this makes sense to me you know like this this made sense to me in in my worldview at the time and then as uh as we come into the 2008 election where um you know, president obama was or you know, then senator obama was uh, was campaigning i remember thinking ah man there's some it's just some things that are kind of off like i i i i don't think this is the guy right like this 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 is not the guy for me um but i saw a lot of friends a lot of christian friends uh you know almost promote the guy like he was the second coming uh, right and I, that that really turned me off. Um, it was really distasteful to me. But then, eight years later, I saw the same level of devotion towards Donald Trump, and that was what was kind of the you know like the light bulb moment for me. It's like Ugh. what I found so distasteful in other folks, other Christians who thought that uh, you know, President Obama was God's gift to the American presidency. I see in equal measures, you know, maybe greater or lesser, depending on what part of the country you're in, you know, the same kind of devotion, the same quality of devotion towards Donald Trump and for, in, in Christian friends who should know better. It's like, oh, man, that's that's also not good. Neither of these are good options. Why can't we all see this? And then that was what kind of began my journey of you know, feeling less comfortable naming myself in uh, in terms of the typical right and left you know, political spectrum and uh, eventually kind of coming to uh, coming to be somewhat politically homeless and uh, so it seems like you've kind of experienced a, a similar sort of thing you've mentioned libertarianism what is it at a big picture level like what kinds of things do libertarians believe like what what is maybe some of the moral underpinnings of that because I, I i have heard people say well you can't legislate more you can't legislate morality i i would agree in some respects but i think i would also disagree in other respects because for example rape theft and murder have always been moral issues and we do legislate against those because those things are patently and unequivocally immoral and so like what are some of the, maybe the moral underpinnings of libertarianism help us kind of walk through what what this thing is and maybe address some of the stereotypes of what it isn't as well yeah libertarianism is a really big concept and there is surprise surprise a lot of disagreement among libertarians as to how we should define the term so i'm going to be as general as possible yeah. in my in my uh my definition here but at its heart, libertarian is a belief in a principle called the non-aggression principle, and this is simply the idea that you do not have the right to initiate aggression against another adult human being, just as they do not have the right to initiate aggression against you. And so it's this space where you are an autonomous individual and you own all of your own choices, and as long as your choices do not impinge upon somebody else's ability to make decisions for themselves, then those choices should be allowed in society. And you also have to own the consequences of those choices. It's not somebody else's responsibility to come and clean up the messes that you have made and that's that's the fundamental idea behind the non-aggression principle so for libertarianism one, we believe... one real quick question oh yeah Alex. Sorry, sorry to talk over you um you had specified it not you you should not initiate aggression towards uh an adult human being you specified adult is there a reason for adult or or 
did you not mean to specify adult? Oh, no. I mean, because as a libertarian, I believe you have a right to raise your kids. <laughs> and, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And course. you have to yeah, discipline yeah. your kids, yeah. right? Yeah. And, so, yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. But I mean, there are some libertarians that say that you can't punish your kids at all because, they, you know, you don't have a right to aggress against them. But I do think that as a parent, it's your – and honestly, we have a God-given we have <laughs> okay. a God -given commission that, as Christians to that, raise our kids. That's what I mean that, by that. That nuance makes sense. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I'm also not in favor of beating children either. Right. I don't want it to come off like that. <laughs> right. Yeah, like let's let's that's fine. Yeah. I'm a public <laughs> yeah. school teacher. I'm, I'm not I'm not in favor of violence against young children. So I just want to, right. want to keep, and, put and that on the record. That's there. the non-aggression principle, right? You know, yes. like it's it, it's a, a severe curtailing of of violence, essentially, yes. right? Yes. And and there are a lot of different brands, like brands of libertarianism. They kind mm -hmm. of range from the classical liberal spectrum, which is where I started. And in a lot of ways, I still I still identify, I still have strong leanings in that direction. And that's essentially the tradition of John Locke, that the only existence and the only purpose of government is to protect your natural rights, your rights to life, liberty, and property, and government shouldn't do anything other than that. And then you have a group of libertarians called the Menarchists that believe that the government should be in control of, of just a very tiny fraction of things related to the protection of natural rights. And then there are anarchists. And I do have some like some leanings in that direction too that believe that we don't need a state and that um, basically every service that is provided by the state could be provided more efficiently privately. So there are a lot of arguments that are very compelling to me. I'm not sure if I'm there 100% yet, but at the end of the day, libertarians all agree that we need low taxes, if any taxes at all, that we should not have uh, a massive aggressive military presence overseas. We be believe in the rights of the individual, even the rights of individuals that don't agree with you or that don't share your worldview to live in the way that they see fit. And and we believe in free speech and freedom of association. It's just the ability for you to live your life in the way that you see fit, as long as you're not impeding somebody else's ability to live their life in the way that they see fit. And of course, that does lead to a lot of social discomforts. You have to learn how to tolerate the fact yeah. that there are going to be people that are living radically different lives than you and that might be on TV or in the newspapers or writing books that promote values that you do not agree with. But as a libertarian, you believe in free speech and free association. So you can freely associate with people that are like-minded and you also have the right to share your perspective with those that are in the public square. And I think that those are those are the fundamental tenets of libertarianism. And it's it's not an idea that is embodied by either political by, by either major political party in the United States today. Yeah. You specified some things that are, are essentially listed in the Bill of Rights, which, by the way, um, from a libertarian perspective, rights are inherent to humans. They're not things that are granted by the government. Is, is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And again, this goes back to the fact that the Enlightenment tradition is rooted in the Western Christian tradition. You can look at like Isaac Newton's discovery of the laws of gravity were only possible because he believed that there was an intelligent creator that designed the universe with with logic and order. And John Locke was the exact same way. Like John's John Locke's conception of natural rights comes from the belief that God as creator gave us all these natural rights. We have them simply because we are made in God's image and simply because we are alive. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I I think that's a a really important point to to emphasize there is that you know this has particularly come up uh, quite a bit ever since 2020, where um, you know people were people were very insistent on like not having their rights trampled on. Some others were saying, well, you know, the government has a right to take away your rights if it's for a greater cause or something along those lines. And there, there was, you know, like w amongst all the noise of discussion about like what, you know, to mask or not to mask and you know, et cetera. Um, I, I think one thing that might have gotten lost in some of that discussion, which eventually came to the forefront of the discussion was, you know, the source of rights that are inherent to human beings. If you, 
if you have a you know like broadly theistic worldview and and more particularly if you have a christian worldview then it does make sense that god you know gave you that you know humans are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights and then you know, you know chief among them are the things that you have listed those early documents of uh, of the founding of the us are really fascinating to read from from kind of a a, a libertarian perspective um yeah you know like I, I i don't know what do you what do you think about that have i kind of captured correctly what you're what you're thinking there yeah, I completely agree with that. I think the starting point for libertarianism is the classical liberal tradition of the Enlightenment and those values that are definitely derived from Christian culture, because I don't think that you get an idea of natural rights without there being some sort of conception of a transcendent creator and of the creation having value because they were created in that that um, that that creator's image. I think the other aspect of this, too, that might be a little more philosophical, but I think is just as important is that libertarianism at its heart is a critique of human power. And so libertarians do not believe that human beings have have, have perfect knowledge. And so we don't believe that human beings have the ability to make decisions for everybody in society because they cannot foresee all of the negative consequences that might result from the decisions that they make. A really great parallel for Christians for, for this idea is Lord of the Rings. And so J.R.R. Tolkien was a, a medievalist, and he also had very anarchistic tendencies in his political thought. And the entire idea behind Lord of the Rings is that the ring represents power. And it doesn't matter if the good guys have the ring or the bad guys have the ring. Eventually, whoever wears it is going to be corrupted. And so what you have to do is get rid of that. And so power, if you go back to Genesis chapter three, that's kind of the whole idea behind people eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and wanting to become like God. It's not about like sex or money or any of that stuff. It's about power. And that's the fundamental human sin. And there are no instances throughout human history where someone has been given an unlimited amount of power and used it to benefit other people in society. Power is always corruptive and it always makes people act in ways that are dehumanizing. And so libertarians want to decentralize that power as much as possible. All right, power exists in the world. We can't get beyond that. But how do we limit the potentially damaging effects of power? And so at its heart, libertarianism is a critique of human power and our ability to exercise it without harming other people. Yeah, yeah. You're, uh, you're By mentioning Genesis 3, you're touching on a little bit of what we're going to mention here in just a little bit. Let me ask, though, you've used this phrase a couple of times already, classical liberal and classical liberalism. How how do we define that? Because the word liberal today has what I think is an exceedingly different connotation yes. Than, yes. than it is within the phrase of classical liberal or classical liberalism. So what is that that you keep talking about? Yeah. So 18th century Enlightenment liberals were people that believed in exactly what I have been describing. They believed in limited government against the monarchies. They believed in low taxes. They believed in freedom of speech. They believed in the freedom of so association. They believed in natural rights. That's the classical liberal tradition. And mm -hmm. you're right. Over time, the word liberal has actually uh, become associated with policies that have nothing to do with human freedom and actually have a lot to do with government authoritarianism. Yeah. So that language has shifted. But I do like to retain the term classical liberalism because it roots my political philosophy in its historical context. I think yeah. it's important to try to retain that language. And even, even though we have to recognize that it might be confusing, I appreciate you asking that follow-up question. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've I've been reflecting on this over the last uh, maybe year or so, and I've, I've, I think I'm more comfortable these days saying that what the term liberal has come to mean is really a liberal use of state power and authority. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, where liberalism meant, you know, like what you said, you know, 
the, the inherent rights of the individual, the freedom of the individual, what I think it's come to mean these days um, is, you know, a, a or you could take progressivism or progressive uh, along the same lines, you know, where you know, if we use liberal and progressive to refer to, you know, kind of the the left left and leftmost you know, side of the political spectrum of the right left uh, spectrum, then progressive and um, and liberal tend to mean you know a, a, a you know a, a, a progressive use of state power in a you know a, a a liberal or a I don't necessarily want to say wanton use of state power, but that that is probably appropriate in some instances, particularly in other uh, other parts of the world. Uh, did, did, I'm workshopping that a little bit, but does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. And again, I think the the use of liberal to describe progressivism in the United States is unique to the United States. I know I think it's it's either in Australia or New Zealand, but their version of the Libertarian Party, they're called the Liberal Democrats, which in the United States refers to a completely different <laughs> political philosophy than libertarianism. So it just depends. Yeah. But but again, going back to the way that like those parliamentary systems work, like they're retaining the language of the Enlightenment to describe their political philosophy when those words have come to mean different things in American political discourse. I do think progressive is the the best way to describe the modern left right now because it does have historical antecedents in the 19th and 20th centuries and the idea behind progressivism is that there is there is a goal out there for the human race and that we can only progress towards those goals if the government directs and controls the course of history so that's the idea behind the progressive movement and you can see that at the very end of the 19th and the early 20th century with the progressive era that was the philosophy that undergirded that entire yeah. movement it was the idea that because uh the enlightenment had uh, delivered the goods so to speak, the Enlightenment had uh, had been so good at producing all of these scientific advancements that if we applied the language and the method of science to politics, then we can progressively make the world a better place. And the only way that we can do that is by having a scientific government that directs the course of history. And that's where I think that ideology of the left right now, that's why it can be appropriately deemed as progressivism, because there is this belief that the only way that we can uh, that we can create progress as human beings is through centralized power. Yeah, yeah. You would think that 20th century history might show that that actually doesn't pan out. <laughs> so yes, you know, yes, and there, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later on the show. But there are a lot of libertarian philosophers that have made that exact point. Right? Yeah. Um, oh goodness, I was um, I, I was on Twitter slash X uh, maybe last week sometime, and I saw somebody. You know, may, maybe they were just kind of speaking hyperbolically because you know uh, it's twitter and so you unless you pay for it you only have a limited amount of characters but they were saying that they find it so hard to argue with marxists because every time he says you know the problem with marxism is the extraordinary body count and they respond yeah but it's like wait no 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 like 20th century history is pretty clear that this is such a dangerous experiment that it's not worth trying. Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, one would think, right? One would think that, you know, if if we're going to, you know, be sensitive towards the use of power, then continuing to concentrate it in the hands of those who can also wield extraordinary violence is a bad idea. But that. Uh, that hasn't quite caught on everywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. All right, as a Christian, uh, does libertarianism have any? Do you see that libertarianism has any biblical basis? I mean, you mentioned Genesis three and the in the curse of humanity. 
what uh you know either flesh that out a little bit for us or, or what else do you what else would you look at and say you know like hey i really think that this is sort of the biblical underpinnings of why i look at the world this way Yes, I, I love that question, and I'm going to answer it both yes and no. So, right. <clears throat> and I, I want to start with the no first. So libertarianism is not is not a biblical philosophy in the sense that libertarianism is a completely modern philosophical and political construct in the same way that conservatism and progressivism and capitalism and socialism, all of these are modern ideas. And I think that one of the, the biggest problems that we face in the modern church is that we project all of our post-Enlightenment ideas back into the New Testament, and they just thought in completely different categories than yeah. we did in the modern world. There are a lot of libertarians that are guilty of trying to force the Bible to um, to affirm this comprehensive libertarian um, philosophy, but it, 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 it doesn't do that because it can't. Like That wasn't the, the world in which it was written. And so we have to appreciate that there is a 2,000-year gap with lots of historical events in between, between where we are now and what was taking place in the first century and not import all of our modern ideas back into antiquity. The good thing about answering that question in the negative, no, libertarianism is not a strictly biblical principle, is that, as I said before, that applies to every other modern political philosophy. None of them are, strictly yeah. speaking, outlined in the Bible because they all, all come from assumptions that were not generated until the Enlightenment. So I would say that as, as, as outlined as an articulated doctrine in the Bible, no, it is not. But I do think that a lot of the principles of libertarianism are found in the Bible. And for me, I went to Bible college in 2007, and I graduated in 2012. So this was right at the time that anti-imperial studies and New Testament uh, and New Testament studies was becoming very popular. Mm -hmm. And so I read a lot of people like N.T. Wright. He was very influential in my early days, not so much now as I've You uh, mentioned that to, to some I, other point where I think we I know. On, on Twitter or something like that. We, we might get into that a little bit because he, yeah. he's generally yeah. a fan favorite. Yeah, I, I, there, I, I think N.T. Wright. When he's right, he is, he is on point, and when he's wrong, he is real wrong. Um, but, 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 uh, but, uh, reading a lot of N.T. Yeah. Wright and then Mike, Michael Gorman and James Dunn at the time and mm -hmm. Richard Bauckham, like, like all of those kind of guys, and thinking through how I understood um, the kingdom of God and how I understood New Testament ecclesiology and soteriology, that really made me think about my commitments to politics. And so when I when I look at the Bible, you have the Old Testament. Obviously, you have the fall of man, which is all about man trying to become like God and and God calls Abraham's family to undo all of the mm -hmm. problems of man's sin. And Abraham's family, Israel, winds up failing. But uh, throughout that process, God promises that one day he will send a, a, a son of David to come and rescue all of his people. And in the New Testament, we believe that happens with the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. All right. And, and ascension. So, I'm glad to hear you mention that, man. That's that, a, that's such a key point. Yeah, I think Matthew Bates does a great job making that. And plenty of other people as well, but particularly yeah. Matthew Bates. I, I know that's a guy who's been on my show and your show as well. Yes, yeah. And Patrick Schreiner has a great book on the ascension that I read last year. Um, and that really opened up Hebrews for me. A lot of the uh, like a lot of the hermeneutical problems I had with the book of Hebrews mm -hmm. were were made very clear once I understood the the place that the ascension had in that. But I think the conclusion that we can draw from that as a, a, from a big picture perspective is that Abraham's family, as Paul says in Galatians 3 and in Romans chapter 4, is defined by faith in the Messiah. So how do you tell who one of God's people are? Well, these are people that put their faith in Jesus, and that mm -hmm. makes us a part of the United 
family of Abraham. As Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there's no Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. We're all one in Christ Jesus, and we're all part of the family of Abraham. So that is our primary identity as Christians. And because of that, if you look at the way that Paul uses the language in the ancient world, that means that our identity is not to our nation. It's not to our tribe. It's not to our ethnicity. It's not to any of our, our social status or any of that stuff. Our, the only identity that matters is the identity that we have in Christ. And that is what bonds us to every other Christian. So you, ha you have that aspect the ecclesiological aspect of it. And then the gospel is centered on, you had Matthew Bates on your show a couple weeks ago, the idea that Jesus is the Messiah is what Paul says in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Timothy 2, that his gospel is about Jesus being the Messiah and dying for our sins and being raised in power. And so we believe that Jesus is the only legitimate king. And as the only legitimate king, he redefines what it means to wield power. So you got like really incredible passages like Philippians chapter two and Revelation chapter five, yeah. where the writers yeah. of the Bible explicitly state that Jesus derives his power from the fact that he was willing to make sacrifices for people that didn't deserve it. That's what real power looks like. It's not lording over other people. It's not trying to dominate them. It's not forcing them to do things that they don't want to do. It's by serving them through sacrificial love. And so I think when you combine all of those aspects together, that gets you to a kind of a libertarian take on society. All right. So we only believe that Jesus is the king. So our allegiance to our nation or our country, that's completely irrelevant. Like my status as an American does not matter at all. And in fact, there are Christians that are all over the world. I have more connection to a Christian in Nigeria um, spiritually than I do to someone who is not a Christian in the United States. So that, that national identity just doesn't matter. And we're all bonded together as a, um, as 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 the family of God, and that should be our primary identity. And I think the the one of the most important lessons we can take about this away from the Bible is in the book of Acts. And there are two really, I think, compelling uh, narrative streams in Acts that kind of demonstrate how this all comes together. The first and and one of the the most beautiful is in Acts chapter four, where Peter stands in front of the Sanhedrin after um after doing all of these very powerful signs in front of the Jewish people in Jerusalem, and the Sanhedrin is like, you know, we really don't like what you're doing. You're going to have to stop. And Peter says, well, I don't know if we have to listen to you. <laughs> or, but I, I I can't stop telling people what I have seen God do. And the Sanhedrin, they weren't just the religious authorities. The idea that there's a split between religion and politics, that's a post-Enlightenment ideal. Like oh, the yeah. Sanhedrin were yeah. political authorities. And so mm -hmm. Peter was saying, okay, I know that you guys are in charge, but we are we're, we're, we're dealing with this thing that's much bigger than your political power. And no matter what you do, like we cannot stop telling people about it. And then you have the witness of Paul in the second half of Acts. As Paul goes throughout the Roman Empire on all his missionary journeys, he comes into contact with some of the most powerful people in the Roman Empire, like proconsuls, people who had made it to the heights of Roman power. Mm -hmm. And Paul never once says, hey, you know, I really think you need to change all of your political policies. I really need to think you roll, need to roll back the roll for the warfare state. I need to, I, I need you guys to implement. He never does any of that stuff. What he does when he comes into contact with very powerful Romans is he preaches the gospel to them. That's what he does. He doesn't try to influence policy. He doesn't try to change the direction of the Roman Empire. He just preaches the gospel and he lets that work itself out. Again, it's like, you know, yesterday was Reformation Day. We know Romans uh, 1, 16 and 17, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And I think mm -hmm. Paul really, really believed that. And so for me, Christianity has always been supra political. We we're, we're like as Christians, we're supposed to be beyond politics. Yes, that that's that's a thing that happens in the world. And if we have the ability to push um, the political conversation in a direction that is more life giving and more healing and less authoritarian than we should, but at the end of the day, our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. And what we do as a church goes beyond the 
petty politics of the world and our conception of power and our conception of kingship needs to be shaped by the Bible. And so I think when you look at those principles, then you do see a biblical basis for libertarianism, even though the philosophy is not explicitly spelled out in the text. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that really does. Um, as you were as you're kind of walking through some of that, uh, I am struck by how little we see in particularly in the New Testament of Jesus commenting on particular policies that were enforced, like legally enforced policies. Uh, you, uh, Paul as well, um, without getting to, to like you know Romans thirteen or First um, <clears throat> Peter First uh, Peter two or anything like that. Um, you know, but I like there's so little where Jesus actually comments on any particular policy or anything like that. And so much of what Jesus uh, Jesus's ethic is rooted in is uh, is voluntary, self sacrificial love. I mean, you mentioned Philippians chapter two earlier, um, and how uh, how Jesus's model of kingship, uh, leadership there is is sacrificial. The emphasis, right, is self sacrificial. We we've seen a lot of leaders here recently who are more than willing to sacrifice other people's rights and other people's. Yes. You know, goods and and services and time and energy and resources and things like that. But Jesus, Jesus is, and and I I know this is what you meant that Jesus's model there was self-sacrificial. His emphasis was constantly on, hey, you know, like it it is incumbent upon you to ensure that you know that that the kingdom is is meeting the needs of these people who are in need of the yes. gospel and in need of that. I do want to ask though. Uh, despite the clear fact that we don't see, you know, Jesus, Paul, or Peter, or anybody else commenting specifically on you know, policies or things like that, but like, aren't there times when it would be appropriate, like the you know civil rights movement in the 1960s, like like how how people based on family lineage were incapable, legally unable to do certain things like vote or or stuff like that. Like, surely, surely that's a time when a Christian could say. You know, it is worth having the discussion on the policy and changing the policy, right? Like, help me kind of work through that distinction there. Or, or maybe you don't feel that way at all. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely, I definitely understand the concern that you are addressing here. And the Civil Rights Act is very complicated because there are a lot of libertarians that don't believe, and, and I'm, I am one of those too that don't believe in the Civil Rights Act. And I know that that sounds like very shocking, but. Ultimately, I think my critique of the Civil Rights Act was that it took away the ability of people to freely associate with those whom they want to. And so when it comes to trying to contextualize those sorts of things, obviously, we believe that racism is wrong. And Christians were at the forefront of the abolitionist movement before yeah, the Civil yeah, War. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the very racist policies that were being combated by the Civil Rights Act were enshrined into law by Jim Crow in the South. So right. it was it was an example of the government solving the problem that it had created itself after the Civil War. Um, I, I so I the law see... like so you would argue right? And again, sorry to sorry to jump. Oh in no, here, no, you're, no, you're good. You're good. The laws, the gen, let's just use Jim Crow legislation as sort of the the target here. The Jim Crow legislation because it's inherently. Uh, because it's inherently restrictive, it's it's anti-freedom. It's 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 dehumanizing. That, that's a good way to put it. It's yeah. because it's inherently dehumanizing. Would you like? I, I would say that you know, in that instance, in the, that particular instance, that I would have a duty, a, a Christian duty, if, if I could, 
to uh, to to push to to have that particular law changed. Yes, I, like that would make sense, right? I, I would think even. Oh yeah, from a, no, absolutely. Yeah, I have no. Even I have no from a libertarian that. perspective, that yeah. would make sense because because those laws inherently violate the non-aggression principle, right? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And again, like they would not have had the ability to do that in the ancient world. Like Paul is a he's a Roman citizen, but he's a Jew from the Eastern Roman Empire. He had no political power and he had no ability to change the policies of the ancient Roman Empire. Yeah, yeah. And in modern, you know, call America, America is not really a democracy. It's not really a republic either. But we do have some say uh, or we, we do at least have the ability to mount a protest against laws that we think are unjust. And I sure, do think yeah. that Christians have a responsibility to do that. And so I, I am completely in favor of the spirit of the civil rights era. Yeah, but I yeah, do yeah, think yeah. that you can make the argument, and there are very powerful um, and thoughtful economists like Thomas Sowell, a uh, really great black economist, one of the greatest intellectuals of the, the 20th and 21st century, yeah, who has yeah. made the argument against particular aspects of the Civil Rights Act because it's actually wound up making it harder for people of color to make personal decisions about their own lives and their own businesses. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of his discussion about um, about you know the kind of assistance that would be offered to uh, to people depending on you know whether or not there was uh, you know a, a husband in the house yes something yes. along those lines that um and i've i've heard him talk about that uh, off and on or uh, in in several venues as well yeah so yeah. like that that kind of thing is the kind of thing that you as a libertarian would say yikes man that's that's not cool but like yeah the the you know <laughs> I, I promise i'm not going to use just that clip I'm not. I'm against the civil rights. I'm yeah, not, I'm yeah. Not no, that need, that need, there's there's a thousand a thousand qualifiers that need to be made. Right, that. Absolutely. I'm very much against racism, <laughs> and uh, and I'm very much against uh, sexism and all of those things. I just yeah, I need yeah, to yeah, make yeah, that yeah, abundantly yeah. clear. Yeah. Somebody's gonna cut that clip, yes. and it's gonna go viral. And we're just like, oh man, no, no, no. It's like, yeah, no. It's like, a it's a philosophical legal argument. Yes. It, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, with, and honestly, if it, it, uh, just real quick, if I could, yeah, yeah, like, I, I would I'd love to give two recommendations to two book recommendations to sure, listeners. Yeah. Um, so the first recommendation, Thomas Sowell's Economic Facts and Fallacies, one of the best books in economics I ever read and really helped me uh, go further down the libertarian path. And what Thomas I'm going to write does, that down you know, so I can make sure to post that on the on the link here. It's, it's really good. And he goes – Thomas Sowell goes in-depth into all of these economic policies that have been pursued by the United States government over the last 100 years, and he shows how all of those economic policies are either not founded in statistics, like the statistics don't bear out the success of those policies, or mm -hmm. they, that they have had dramatically negative unintended outcomes. And so if you start from the premise in economics, which you have to, that uh, intentions do not guarantee outcomes, yes, the intention of a lot of this legislation was very, very good, trying to set the record straight, trying to right wrongs that had been enshrined in American law. But if you look at the outcomes over the last 60 or 70 years, I mean, the cornerstone of the Civil Rights Act in the 1960s was the war on poverty, that we were going to solve poverty in the United States. Mm -hmm. And instead, it looks like a lot of those policies have created a permanent underclass of people that are dependent on the state and that have been dehumanized by this legislation. And the other book that's really good is by Amity Schles. It's called um, The Great Society. And it's a history of the civil rights movement. And Amity Schles in that book, she outlines 
a lot of the ways which going back even to the middle of the 1960s, a lot of these civil rights policies actually hampered private charity. And there were many, many like thousands of Americans that had the support that they needed to get back up off of their feet and that the Civil Rights Act undercut a lot of those private charitable organizations and have had a lot of very negative uh, and dramatically um, disparaging unintended consequences later on down the road. Both of those books are brilliant and they really reshape the way that we think about the Civil Rights Act because you know, mm. Martin Luther King Jr. had a great vision for American society. We yeah. need to have a, yeah. a society where people are judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Mm-hmm. I completely agree with that. But a lot of the political policies that were pursued um, to implement that vision for society have had unintended consequences. And a lot of people don't realize that many of the political problems that we are facing today are the results of the consequences of those policies that were signed into the law 60 years ago. And again, yeah. If you declare war on something in 60 years, you should have either won that war or, or you should have retreated and stopped fighting it, you know, but here we are, you know, 60 years later, still yeah. fighting the same war we were fighting in the 1960s. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that it makes more sense now because when you mentioned particularly like one of your particular hangups with the Civil Rights Act was the, you know, it's how it would hamper the ability of like free association. I, I, I didn't know to what you were referring, but it, you know, is it the, the inability of, uh, of, you know, extending private charity? Like, is, is that kind of one of the aspects yeah. of it that you particularly had in mind? Yeah, that's part of it too. And as, as, as a libertarian, you know, I believe in free market economics. And I think that there, there are very few businesses that can afford to stay in business while being explicitly racist, sexist, or bigoted. You're just, you're not going to stay in business one because people, because people, people are not going to want to go. Yeah. There's a very small amount of the, like a very small amount of the American population that would patronize any business that was openly racist or openly bigoted towards a group of the population. And a lot of business owners, they're more concerned about making money and getting rich than they are about discriminating against people. And Thomas Sowell has another really great book called, um, it's called Black Rednecks and White Liberals, where he talks a lot of, about a lot of these mm-hmm. dynamics. And one of the points that he makes is that even in the Jim Crow South, they put these uh, they put these price floors in place. Um, so essentially, it was like a minimum wage. And so white people could only get hired on to certain like union jobs if they were making a certain amount of money. And so what happened is you had all of these very racist Southerners that hired black people under the table because they didn't have to pay them as much as their unionized employees. Now, a lot of people would look at that and say that's discrimination. But in that state of affairs, black people were actually able to get jobs in the free market. And that demonstrates that these business owners were more concerned about productivity than they were about their personal biases. Mm -hmm. And then over time, I think people are going to adjust when they actually come into contact with people that are different than them, those personal preferences. And I think when it comes to the Civil Rights Act, like it's a two-way street. So yes, there might be some racist bar in Alabama that only allows white people to come in and patronize their bar. Those things would exist if there were were no, but but imagine that if if you're you're a gay person and you, you want to set up a business that only caters to gay people. You don't want any straight pe- people to um, to to buy from you or to engage in business with you. Yeah. Should you have a right to do that? Absolutely. Would that exclude me from, from going to your business? Yes, but then you'd also be making the decision as a business person to say, I am going to cut myself off from that part of the market. Right. And I believe as a libertarian, that's 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 a that's a right that that's a, that's a decision that everybody has the right to make. I know it sounds very, very scary for a lot of people in the yeah. modern world, but I do think that by putting some of those barriers to association in place. It actually entrenches a lot of people's biased views towards other people. And it also creates a situation where, um, 
they're not going to be willing to try to freely associate or get along or garner the business of somebody else. And I know that I'm not doing like the best job in the world of exploring that, but there is a lot of economic research and Thomas Sowell's work and, and other economists that demonstrate across the board. If you look at the statistics that, 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 th that those factors bear themselves out. Does that make, does that make sense where I'm coming from? No, it, it really does. And I'll, I'll admit, you know, in the list of questions that I sent you to kind of help guide our discussion here, uh, they're really light on economics because yeah, I didn't honestly, prep for that one. <laughs> that, that is something that I am that I, that I I personally struggle to struggle to to understand. Um, <laughs> by God's grace, I passed uh, I passed my economics class in high school, at which we only uh, offered AP economics, and so I, I passed the class, but I think I got like a one on the AP test or something. Like I just that just that that stuff was uh, always over my head, <clears throat> and so you know when you when you start talking about free markets and things like that, um, I, I I admit that I, I I don't have the best and nuanced understanding of it. However, I, I feel like I have a little bit better handle on you know maybe like a biblical underpinning for why libertarianism makes sense and you know, from a philosophical philosophical perspective, I I think so. But like what you've presented, I think is is reasonable. You know, take for, it, like if we can take for example. This uh, this hypothetical bar that you mentioned, you know, like if you're only going to, um, if you're all, only going to appeal to a very small percentage of the population, and you mentioned, I think you mentioned a gay bar or something like that, you know, you could make it a bar for only verifiable white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who happen to be straight and cisgendered, <laughs> like you, like again, like right. you could just flip it on the other side there, and again make it for a very narrow, small. Per part of the population you you would say that you know it's that that might seem wild and ridiculous but the person who wants to open such an establishment should be free to do so and yes. they should just expect to you know, deal with the consequences of intentionally narrowing their uh you know their potential customer base and the market, meaning how people will decide to spend their time and money and where they'll go and patron businesses, right. that will that will figure out whether or not that's going to be a successful or an unsuccessful venture. Like, have I have I kind of in miniature have I kind of captured what you're what you're saying, Alex? That that that's exactly right, and that's really the idea behind the philosophy of market competition. Like when you think about market competition, it's just simply the ability for competitors to come in with an alternative version of the product or the the service that you're already providing, and to either to either create a better version of that product or to sell the same version of that product at a lower price. And when you have a truly competitive market, you wind up with more innovation and lower prices. That if you look at all of the data across. Um, the Western world in the last 200 years, all of the all of the economic trends point in that direction, right? And so when it comes to something like the Civil Rights Act, uh, if you have a well, and it's not even the Civil Rights Act specifically, but when it comes to something like private property, let's say that you you have a you have a business and you're only going to cater to a very small section of the population. Well, this gives another op entrepreneur an opportunity to come along and say, well, look, there's an entire there's an entire section of the market that this business is not catering to. So we're going to come in and we're going to provide the exact same product. We're going to open it up to everyone else. Who are people going to choose? They're probably going to choose the more open business to the one yeah. that is more closed. And so it actually, it puts you at a competitive disadvantage in the marketplace to restrict who you're going to buy and uh, to, to who you're going to sell your goods and services to. 
again, if you believe in private property, a business owner owns their, their business. So it is theirs to do with what they want, but you are not going to be competitive in the marketplace. And you open yourself up to being taken out of business by somebody else who's going to offer that product to a wider, uh, to a wider portion of the market. And I think that had we just, and we, the civil rights is built on on the uh, on the uh, the New Deal and all this other right government regulation right, that was implemented yeah. throughout the late 19th and early 20th century. So it's not like there was no government regulation of the economy, and then you have the Civil Rights Act. And I think mm -hmm. that there are a lot of like libertarian philosophers, like Murray Rothbard is a really good example of this, who have made the argument that a lot of these these uh, laws that were intended, but the the stated purpose by the politicians that enacted them were to do good in society, actually mm -hmm. prevented their competitors from from being successful in the marketplace it's like there there's there's a lot of good economic arguments behind and we know politicians do that all the time the lobbyists go to washington they buy off the politicians and the politicians enact laws that benefit the corporations or the companies that are represented by the lobbyists this happens mm -hmm. all the time and this is not a phenomenon that started in the last 10 or 20 years this goes yeah. back it's a it's a long standing american tradition to buy off politicians like that and i think that with every government regulation again i think the the ultimate point that we have to understand is that intentions do not dictate outcomes so just because you have a good intention with a government regulation or a government law does not mean that in the long run, the outcomes will be what you intended them to be to begin with. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned private property just a moment ago. And again, a, not a question that I had necessarily prepared you for, but it, it, I think it's relevant. One reason why I think I see a lot of Christians, uh, particularly Christians who, again, on that left-right political spectrum might find themselves – center and left of center. One thing that a lot of them um, would would kind of be hesitant about is the notion of private property because in the minds of many people, it seems inherently selfish, right, to say like, well, this is my property and you you don't have a right to take it because you know I've worked for it or you're like, you know, my land in, and my work and my family's work like generated this you know, resource or whatever it is. Um, in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, we, we see a kind of an interesting perspective on private property. And this is kind of what I want your perspective on. Uh, you know, take Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four, for example, the end of those chapters where we see a couple of um, summary statements of how members of the church are handling their private property they 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 give it away you know they give it away um from a libertarian perspective wouldn't that seem to suggest that maybe or from a christian perspective wouldn't that suggest that libertarians are maybe a little hung up too much on private property or, or how would a christian libertarian kind of you know navigate those waters what uh, what would you say there yeah, that's a great question. I think that Christians are obligated to charity. I think that that is one of the fundamental characteristics of being a Christian is that you have to be charitable though to those that are in need. With mm. Acts chat, and I think this is the problem with living in a society where we just assume that the government has to have a monopoly on welfare. So if you yeah. look at the New Deal and you look at the Great Society, both of those dramatically increase government involvement in charity. But in Acts chapter two, those that believed in Jesus voluntarily 
gave up what they mm -hmm. had for the sake of the church. If you were not a Christian, you did not give up your property, and there was no attempt made by the Christians in Acts chapter 2 to convince the Sanhedrin that they needed to raise the taxes of all the people in Jerusalem in order to solve the problems of, of poverty and economic dislocation. And so yeah. that's what makes that's what makes Christian charity so important. It's the, it's the voluntary nature of that charity. And I think that we just assume, because we are used to living in a society where the government has control over charity, that the government always should have control over charity. And it's amazing mm -hmm. how uh, people will read Acts chapter 2 and think that's socialism, when in reality, <laughs> socialism is not voluntary. Socialism <laughs> is when one party <laughs> takes from another party to give to a third party, right? Yeah. Whereas in Acts chapter 2, you the, the Christians are voluntarily giving up the property that is already theirs. Mm -hmm. And again, like people are giving it over. And what, 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 what got Ananias and Sapphira in so much trouble in Acts chapter 5, it's that they said that they were going to give their property up and they lied about that. Right. You know, it wasn't, yeah. yeah. So that's really important. I did, I released an episode on first Timothy five and six, a couple of weeks ago. And in first Timothy chapter five, Paul is dealing with the problems uh, um, of an Ephesus of women who are widows. And one of the really incredible things about first Timothy chapter five is that Paul says, yes, we need to be very generous towards these widows because they're very vulnerable people in our society, but there are certain widows that don't need our charity. Like if you're a young widow, you need to get married. You should not be on our list of widows that receive charity mm -hmm. unless you're 60 years old. And if you are a Christian and you have a family member who is a widow, it is your responsibility to take care of them. It is not the church's responsibility to take care of them. And also within uh, first Timothy chapter five, Paul nowhere says we really need to advocate our, uh, you know, our Roman consul or our Roman governor to raise taxes on the wealthy so that the Romans can come in and give welfare checks out to people in our community. It's none of that. It's the Christian community voluntarily giving yeah. up what is theirs for the sake of other people. Now, I, I and in First um, Timothy chapter six, Paul talks to the wealthy people in the Ephesian congregation. He says, he says, look, if you are lucky enough to be wealthy, you have an obligation to use that wealth to serve those yeah. people that are in need. Like that's a moral non negotiable. But for Paul, that is between the person who has a lot of wealth and God. Like you have to give that up. That is a, that is a responsibility that you have as a Christian. And if you don't do that, okay, we're not going to come and have the government take it away from you mm -hmm. and give it to these people, but you're going to have some problems with Jesus when it comes to judgment day. Yeah. And I think that that yeah. is the consistent model for charity throughout the new Testament. It's voluntary charity, but it is charity that demonstrates like, like you, well, like what, 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 what does, what does James say? Like true faith uh, is that that takes care of, of widows and orphans, right? It comes from yeah. I think James chapter two, right? But that is a voluntary model. And I think that we're just, we're so used to having uh, the government control welfare that we just assume that the only way for Christians to be charitable is if they get the government involved. And this is where a lot of progressive Christians, especially the ones that I see on Twitter, get the mm -hmm. economic component of this wrong and the biblical component of it wrong is they just, they gloss that over. They think, okay, Jesus was all about charity and and the New Testament says a lot of things about charity. Therefore, we need socialism. But I think it's a bad yeah. idea to let the government that is $34 trillion in debt and that has been at war in the Middle East since before I was born have a monopoly control over charity. It just doesn't sound like a good idea to me. It doesn't sound like it's going to be a very efficient <laughs> pretty, way. Pretty poor track charity. record there, yeah. Yes. And again, if you look at the economic data, and I, I've recommended Thomas Sowell, and I know at the end of the show, I'll recommend a couple more books yep. for your listeners. But if you look at the economic data, I think that we can demonstrate that America's welfare programs have actually had uh, – uh, they've actually done more harm to the people that they were intended to help than they've actually served them and allowed them to alleviate the pain that comes from poverty. Yeah, yeah. I, I find it woefully misguided when people point to Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 and will try to make an argument that this is somehow a, an apology for 
um, apology in like a classical sense of a defense for socialism. One of the reasons why, and I like I, I don't think this is a hot take, but like I I I generally try to keep my political opinions um, less public, although <laughs> I'm having you on my show and agreeing with a lot of what you said. So maybe I'm not doing such a great job of that. But uh, at, at least when it comes to like, you know, recommending particular candidates here or there, I won't do that publicly because I know that some people might have a problem of differentiating, you know, Kevin, the private individual versus Kevin, the authority figure at church. So like I, that, that's, that's my personal choice. And I don't, I don't bind that on any other minister. Just you want them to be careful. But one of the reasons why I find the um, find the argument that Acts two and Acts four, uh, you know, promote socialism, why I find that argument so laughable and, and also also woefully misguided, is that <clears throat> the the in one of the things that's inherent to a socialist system is the either you know the acting of or the threat of force. In order to remove from someone that for which they've worked and then redistribute it, ideally, the redistribution is equitable. What happens in practice, however, is that the redistribution is rarely equitable. It's rarely just. It so often goes primarily to those in power and then may, you know, you know, may trickle little by little, if at all. To those who might actually need it, right. And so, you know what what Jesus advocated for, and what we see the early church doing. You're you're absolutely right to use the word voluntary. Um, you're also absolutely right, I think, to emphasize that they should feel Christians should feel a spiritual obligation. They should feel a moral obligation to help at, at least those within the church. And in, like, there's there's some room for debate of like. Whom should Christians help? You know, yes, obviously people in the church, but like, how how much do we help people outside the church? Okay, like, there's room for debate with with that. Um, but I, I I think the main thing that we should be able to recognize pretty easily there is that you know that giving was voluntary. Jesus's self sacrifice, beautifully depicted in Coloss or Philippians two, was uh, you know was voluntary. He gave himself up, and so that's that's one of the things that I think Christians ought to be much more sensitive to is that when we begin to advocate for the state to have a hand in doing that which Christians should be doing, what we're what we're ultimately saying is, you know, we need to fulfill the will of God through the use of the state, through the use and threat of force, and that's one thing that I've seen you and I. Uh, particularly you, but I, I know on our on on the episode that I did with you uh, several weeks ago on ministering in politically divided times, um, that was one thing that I that I really felt comfortable verbalizing, maybe for the first time publicly. Was you know we we talked about Christian nationalism and Christian progressives, and how you know like I I, I was arguing that both are rival denominations of the same religion and the religion is the worship of the state and the use of state power to effect the kingdom of god and i i just i just don't see jesus authorizing us to do it anywhere near to the degree you know, like yes i we've 
talked earlier in the episode, yes, there's a time and place for us to use political processes to, you know, you get rid of dehumanizing laws and 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 increase increase freedom and and uh, and liberty for others. Uh, yes, I think there's a time for that. But um, to do what a lot of Christian nationals and and Christian progressives who would you know who would presumably you know, like not have anything in common, they actually do have something pretty significant in common, and it's because that they're using the threat uh, and, and force of the state in order to effect what Jesus ultimately said: you ought to do self sacrificially. I'm not even going to try to tack a question on the end of that. I'm just going to let you take <laughs> yeah, over because I know you're chomping at the bit. No, that that that, that was perfect. I actually wrote a, an article over on a Libertarian Christian Institute's website that came out just a couple of weeks ago called Progressive Christian Nationalism, where I make that exact same argument that the progressive Christians are structurally the exact same as Christian nationalists. It's so important, and, and you really did a great job of highlighting this, that we have to understand all of these things as being done voluntarily. Now, I know a lot of progressives, and I know that they are they, – they have the best of intentions, and they're very sure. compassionate people, and sure. they're extremely sure. well-meaning. But it is not – it is not – it is neither kind nor charitable nor sacrificial to demand that one group of people with guns goes and takes money from another group of people to give to a third group of people. There's nothing loving about that at all, and so when you just think about it philosophically – which which is all whenever we say that we want to raise taxes on certain people or that we want to uh, that we want to implement a new tax or whatever that's all that we are, we're saying we want the IRS which is armed with guns and backed mm -hmm. by the force of the federal government to forcibly take money from one group of people to give to a third group of people the other problem with that too and Amy Schles talks about this uh, a little bit in her book on the great society is that charity is best done at the local level because at the local level you know the needs of your community like i live in independence kentucky i know yeah. who is in need i kind of know my way around Around. We kind of know which families struggle and everything like that. Mm -hmm. And when you when you centralize welfare at the in the hands of people that are far away, then they wind up creating arbitrary benchmarks for people that receive that money. So, like you said, they tax the American people. You have to spend billions of dollars a year on the bureaucrats that distribute this money and that decide where it's going to go, and then all of the offices and all of the logistics that it takes to give those money to the, the people that receive them. But then there's there, there's no personal connection to those people receiving the money. So yeah. you just have these dependents that look to the federal government and they can meet those minimum benchmark qualifications for welfare, then you've created another dependent and you've made it very easy for them um, to divorce themselves from their community and just rely on somebody from far away. And Amity Schles talks about that effect, that there were a lot of communities, especially cities in the 1960s that were dealing with real problems of poverty. And a lot of those poverties were caused by racist laws that were implemented throughout the United States. Like that's very legitimate. Yeah. But the private charities that were there, they knew the people that needed the, the money. They knew who didn't need the money. And they were able to take all of that money that was charitably given and give it specifically to the people that were needed there. So charity was done much more officially at the local level, privately through organizations that actually had a relationship with the people that were receiving that money instead of dehumanizing these people by just sending them a check from on high if they meet a certain level yeah. of, of benchmarks. And I think that like as Christians, we don't think about it philosophically or historically like that. I think a lot of progressive Christians with the best of intentions see passages on charity in the New Testament, and then they automatically assume that because our framework in the 21st century for charity mm -hmm. is a government monopoly on charity, that we therefore need the government to raise taxes and that's going to solve our problems. Not yeah. only is that not the biblical model, but I don't think that that works in the long run. I think it winds up keeping people permanently in a situation where they're reliant on the government. And again, if you look at like the, the government schools that we send kids that are in the inner cities to, like they're, they're just not getting the skills that they need 
to go out and create their own meaning in their life. They don't, they don't yeah. know what they, like, they don't have the ability to have autonomy because they were never taught that. And the system is almost designed to hold them down in that sense. And I think that's one of the most cynical things about the government monopoly on welfare is that we don't actually care about restoring the whole person. Like we don't actually care about people reaching their full potential and achieving all that they can. We just care about, Oh, we've given this person a check. Therefore we've done our due diligence. And there are plenty of Christians that think that that's what it means to be charitable. And it's just that model is not biblical and it doesn't work economically. Either. Yeah, yeah, and I did. I would also tack on too that that's technically a non sequitur, right? I mean, the you know the conclusion doesn't follow from the premise that you know Jesus says you know whenever you give alms, right? Whenever you give to the poor, I mean, it just it's not like if he says very specifically in Matthew six, whenever you do this, do it in this way. Well, like whenever that happens, you know. I, I, I see Jesus talking to disciples, which implies to me at least that Jesus is putting the responsibility on the disciples yes. to be the ones who are doing the giving. You know, there's a there's several steps that are missing there. If you were to say, well, yeah, Jesus says give to the poor. So therefore, we need to go through all these processes to raise these taxes in order to ensure that you know these people might eventually get what they need to get. Yeah, and I would argue that that's also technically a non sequitur. Hey, this is Kevin with Faith in the Folds. Thanks so much for listening to the first half of my conversation with Alex. We had so much to talk about, and since the U.S. is gearing up for another election cycle, this is a very timely topic as well. Because he and I ended up talking for almost two hours, I've split our episode into two parts. So this was part one. Part two will release next week. As always, thank you so much for tuning in today.